If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask that you open it to John chapter 17. We're going to be finishing that particular chapter of Scripture this morning. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 20, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter in verse 26. It doesn't take too much inspection. It doesn't take too much listening to the world around to realize that we live in a world that is quite fractured, that is filled with disunity, and that most people at some fundamental level think that that disunity and that fracturization of our of our people, whether it's Americans or whether it's people in the world, is not a good thing. There are many screams and many cries for unity coming from many different corners of the world. Certainly as Christians, we believe that unity is important. Now we, as Protestants, would always uphold the Reformation as an unqualified good, that it was good what happened in the 16th century to Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and those who came after them and what they've done. But to the Catholic Church, Luther is not seen as a hero, but he is seen as the one who has fractured the church, caused grave disunity. Where Jesus has called for unity, he brought disunity. There are many things that they can point to pin their fingers on and say, this is exactly the kind of thing that shouldn't happen, that has happened because of the Reformation. They would look at how many denominations there are. They would look at how many individual churches there are that carry absolutely no affiliation with other Christians at all. Independent churches, not even that partner in missions, but, but think that they are a life unto themselves. More than that, they would even point at the beliefs of Protestant churches And how many of these Protestant churches have errant beliefs? And they would say that there is no earthly judge to hold them accountable. There's no earthly power that can hold them accountable. And how much easier is it for these individual churches to be led astray by false teachings and false beliefs? What do Protestants have to say to such things? Are we guilty of fracturing the church? As as Jesus is going to call us to unity, are we in sin because we have not kept the unity of the Catholic Church together? Was Luther wrong, and are we wrong, for not allowing the right channels of the church to be used to press our theological convictions? Have we wrongly fractured the church in the sin of dissent? No. That's good news. The problem is, we've got to come to some sort of a way to actually define what unity is. Unity isn't just gathering people together. After all, if that was all unity was, then America would be as unified today as it ever was because we're all still, like, in America, right? So, check. Well, that's clearly not what we mean when we talk about unity. So, even theologically, even in the church, how we talk about unity matters. What does it mean to have unity? If we think that unity is important, and we do, we think that following our theological convictions is important, we do. We think that such theological conviction must come from Scripture, and we do. What does Scripture tell us about our unity? Well, there could be any of a number of things. Today, we're only going to look at five of those things from these seven verses here in John 17. This finishes off Jesus' prayer and Jesus' final words to his disciples in devotion to them before he will go to his trial and eventually 
be crucified. And previously, as he was speaking directly to the apostles, and I think rightly, but indirectly to us, today he is quite clearly talking especially to those who believe now. What does Jesus have to say about our unity? If you will, begin reading with me in verse 20 of the 17th chapter of John. There Jesus continues his prayer by saying this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, and loved them, excuse me, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of our God. I'm sure that we could pull more than this out, but I I think that we will limit ourselves to only pulling out five different things that our unity is from this particular passage this morning. The first thing I would put before you is that our unity is propositional. Our unity is propositional. Jesus starts at a somewhat odd spot. He does say, I'm not asking for these only, but also for all of those. And what we might expect is for him to say, all of those who will believe in the words that I have given to them, or all of those who will believe in my words. Would have been easy enough for him to say that. Thinking that his apostles would take the very things that he said and and write them out verbatim. But that is, interestingly enough, not what he says. He says, all those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus has authorized the apostles to carry on his work. That means, at some level, interpreting his work and understanding how his words and how his actions have fit together. So many people have bought, because some publisher somewhere thought this was a good idea, those little red-letter Bibles where Jesus' words are kind of set aside and read as though they had more prominence. At the very least, Doing something like that draws a distinction between the rest of Scripture and Jesus' super holy words. But that's clearly not the case for how Jesus even lays this out because it's not as though you only believe through his words. So if you read all the red letters, you can get everything you need. He quite clearly authorizes the apostles to be the ones that take his word forward. So our belief is through their word. Our belief is centered on their word. Our belief is is based upon the things that they wrote. As much as it is the red bits of our Bible, it is indeed the black parts as well. Let it be all red so that everything is seen as the word of Christ, or let it be all black so that everything is known to have come through the prophets and the apostles. But it is through their word 
That belief must be focused on what they have called our belief to be in. We don't just get to believe in anything we want to. It has to be focused and driven by what they say that we ought to believe in. It's not this general abstract love of God, whatever you might make of him or her or it, but rather what the apostles say God is. The focus has always been and always will be on the very work of God in Christ. Jude 3 says that there is a faith once and for all handed down to the saints indicating at the very least that the faith that the apostles have is no different than the faith that you ought to have. There's a steady state going on between the first century and the 21st century that we are linked and bonded to them even in unity because we believe in the same things. This is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, I delivered to you those things that were of first importance, namely that Jesus died According to scriptures, he was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures. We have to believe in these. Paul says this is of first importance. Jude says this is the very faith that was handed down all the way through, once and for all. The faith that is based on these first important things means that at the very, very narrowest, we have to believe and understand who the God is that we are believing in, who the Christ is that we are believing in, what he has done and how he has done it. And spelling all of these things out in sentences with normal content and meaning is what we mean when we say it's propositional. Jesus Christ is God. Check. The Son is co-equal with the Father and he is co-equal with the Spirit. Check. The Trinity is real and good and true. Check. These are easy to understand propositional statements. Now, unpacking them might be difficult. But this is what we mean when we say that you have to believe these things. This is what the early church laid out for us in Scripture. And let's be very clear. It's not just people in the early church making a big deal where there's not a big deal. Scripture itself does this. By the end of the first century, we have John writing in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Why in the flesh? Why not just say, we believe in Jesus? Because immediately, by the end of the first century, and I do mean that immediately, notice how short of a time span that is. We were 2,120 you know, less than 2,100 years from the time that Jesus was raised about, you know, 2,000 years or so. And in that short 60-year period after Jesus was killed and raised to life again, already they're having to differentiate between people who want to claim that Jesus is Lord, but being God never actually took on a body, and those who rightly confess. So John is clearly making a distinction. It's not enough to simply say, Jesus is Lord. You have to believe that he actually dwelled with man as a man, fully human, with blood and flesh. This is the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Some people didn't think he came in the flesh. Some people didn't think he was resurrected in the flesh. Paul says you are to be pitied because if Jesus wasn't raised in the flesh, you have no hope. In Acts chapter 15, the early church is fighting 
to make sure that justification that happens once for all to the saints when they believe is kept intact and that the law does not creep in and make us have to do the same things all over again as though Jesus' blood did not do everything that we needed it to do. Galatians then takes that very idea and says, not only do you need to hold on to that, which is the basis of everything in Galatians 2, but you need to walk in line with that. So that Peter, walking away from table fellowship with with Gentiles, was an absolute horror to Paul. It was a denial of justification by faith. Paul looks at Peter and tells him that he is indeed condemned if he doesn't stop. The early church fought along the lines of the Trinity, who this God was. This isn't something that the early church did in the third and fourth centuries that the church wasn't doing all along. In Scripture, the church is continually saying what we believe matters. The early church carried this on. We must understand what we are signing up for in our beliefs. The church has never, ever been quiet about this. We don't have hidden beliefs that we only give you later once you get in and we show you the secret handshake. We are very upfront about everything that we believe. They've done this because this is important. You need to know. We have always needed to be able to check the right boxes of belief, those things of first importance. This is why we would come to Mormons and we would say, Mormons, you are not unified with us. You believe that the Father is a fully corporeal being. You believe that Jesus Christ became God. You you can't be one with us. We cannot be unified to you. You're out. That's heresy. Jehovah's Witnesses, you're also out. Jesus Christ wasn't created. It's not enough to just have blokes walk in off the street and say, Jesus is Lord, and say, okay, we're all on the same page. Unity, unity, unity. Our unity is propositional. We must hold on to those things that have been given to us in the word of God. But that's not enough. It also must be personal. Jesus goes on. If we believe in him through their word that we will all be one, just as, and he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. That they might also be in us. That comparison at the beginning of that verse, just as, is quite a comparison. So even as we, Father, have unity together, that they should be unified. How exactly is the Father and the Son unified together? A good indication of how closely they are unified is to go back to John chapter 14, a famous passage where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Philip for whatever reason, has his little Peter moment, and he says, I tell you what, you can just, don't worry about all the extra stuff you're talking about, Jesus. If you would just show us the Father, it's enough. And, and you get the sense that Jesus kind of did, like, look, looking around saying, I, have you not been with me long enough to understand what's going on here, Philip? Like, to have seen me is to see the Father, That so unified are the Father and the Son that what the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Father does. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To have Jesus is to have the Father. They are one. And given the fact that they share the same essence, I should say that differently, they have the same essence. They do not share it. 
It is not piecemealed out to each of the three. They have the same essence. This would necessarily be so. The son always has the father, and the father always has the son. The question then becomes, how do we get in on that? How is it that we will be unified just as the father and the son are unified? I think that understanding all of John 17 as a connection and a finishing statement for John 13, 14, 15, and 16 helps quite a bit. We cannot somehow become God. God cannot parcel out a bit of his divinity to us. We cannot be made God, but we can receive the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes to us even back in John chapter 14, where Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The coming of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells in people, the person of the Spirit with us is what connects us just as the Father is unified to the Son. If the Spirit is in us, then we also, within ourselves, have the very essence of God. It doesn't mean that we have the essence of God in our nature, but it does mean that the Spirit dwells with us. And this makes sense because it is the Spirit that leads us into all truth. We get both orthodoxy from the Spirit and right thinking and orthopraxy, right living from the Spirit. So orthodoxy in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He not only guides the apostles into the truth, but he guides us into the truth. But everywhere else in Scripture, especially toward the end in Galatians, for instance, in Galatians 5, it is the Spirit at work against the flesh that leads us to live righteous lives and orthopraxy before God. Both right doctrine and right living come from the work of the Spirit. So it's not just that our unity is propositional. What we can't have is people who just sign off on the right things but have no indication, no indication in their lives that they have ever truly experienced the Spirit working in them. Our unity must be personal as well. We must know the person of the Spirit, have felt the effects of the person of the Spirit. Even as John 3 says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless you are born again. The wind, the Spirit moves where he wills. This is why we call for honest regenerate church membership. If we are to be unified, you have to have both of these things. We need to know that the Spirit has worked in you, that he has moved in you, that you know Jesus on a personal level. You don't just know about him, but the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. You do also need to understand good doctrine and good teaching. We hold you accountable to that. But we need to see some evidence that you have been born again. Our unity is personal. Thirdly, our unity is purposeful. Our unity is purposeful. Jesus continues. The end of verse 21, he says this. So that, he goes, go, we'll go back a little bit. 
that they may also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Later on in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Our purpose is to picture Jesus Christ for the world and to live in such unity that the world looks at us and understands something about the fact that Jesus Christ has been sent into the world. The church has always been connected with Jesus. As you go through the book of Acts, we find that Saul is absolutely rabid about ending the church. He's threatening the church. He's holding the coats for those who had stoned Stephen. At this point in time, Jesus has ascended and gone to the right hand of God the Father. Even as he is in a literal body, Paul has not been persecuting his physical body. But nevertheless, when Jesus shows himself to Saul, he says very clearly, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians does the same thing when he talks about our membership together. Our unity is based on the fact that we are members of the same body. In the book of Romans, he uses that idea of being belonging to the same body. This is exactly the same thing he says in Ephesians. Same metaphor, body. Where the church is truly gathered, the person of Jesus is truly there. So Jesus says that where we are unified together where we are one in body, we also show him to the world. The first thing that I think this implies is that if we live and believe like Christ taught, the world should take notice of that. That if we honestly as a church come together and do the things that we ought to do, believe what we ought to believe, and act as we ought to act, as we've already talked about as the basis of our unity, then the world should notice but I think that there's another implication that I would like to talk through with you as well, and that is that our, the world ought to see Jesus as the center of our unity. That they ought to know that we are unified around nothing else but Jesus. In Scripture, the very earliest part of the church had an outright miracle. And it wasn't just that people would come and touch clothes that Peter might have have thrown on the ground or something like that, or, or that, that demons were exercised by the apostles, or even all the miracles that Jesus did. One of the long-standing and kind of hardest-to-see miracles is that in the preaching of the gospel, Jews and Gentiles sat down at the same table and ate. Jews and Greeks living together in harmony. They had nothing in common. You couldn't get two people groups that probably disliked each other as much. And even if they didn't dislike, the thought of, of sharing life together would have been distasteful to both. They did not have history in common. They had no culture in common. They had no philosophy in common. They had no politics in common. They had no values in common. And yet, when they gathered, it was clear that they had Jesus in common. When I work through the, the last membership class, I don't know how I get to certain topics, 
But I happened to get to the topic of cowboy churches. So if you go out west, uh, there are churches that are, they basically call themselves cowboy churches. And uh, they, they hold these, these services in like rodeo rings and things like that. Uh, and they, they play gospel-y country western music. And I, I don't mean to disparage that. I think that a lot of those churches, it's country western music that's focused on the gospel. And I, don't, I know that when I say country music, you're probably thinking, ah, he's talking down to it. And 99% of the time, I, I usually am. But right now, I'm, I don't mean to do that. So it, it, it features this cowboy sort of flavor. You know, a lot of men with very big hats and mustaches. So that's kind of the, the trend that you're going to get. M- many of these, I'm sure, are excellent churches. They, they desire to take the gospel to people. They desire to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And they are truly, honestly, praying and worshiping him rightly. But I can't help but think that there's something problematic about that. The question is, do I need to actually like cowboy things to become a member of that church? Like, on, on a superficial level, am I going to have to grow a mustache and buy a big hat? But on another level, do I have to like cowboy things? And I think that if I went to one of those leaders and I, I said, listen, elder, I, I want to know, I don't really like cowboy stuff, but I love the gospel. Can I join your church? I have no doubt that he would look at me and be like, oh, brother, you can join. You can be a member here. As long as you have right living and right right doctrine, you can join. That, that's great. But I, I gotta feel like I would never actually be a part of that church because that church is built, the whole name of some of these churches is built around this idea of cowboyish. I don't like horses. I, I don't understand why people own horses. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And these people, this is basically built around liking horses. The question is, if, if somebody outside the church looks at that church and says, why did these people come together? Why are all of these people gathered here? The, the answer for something like a cowboy church would obviously become, well, they're worshiping Jesus, so Jesus is part of that, but they really like cowboy stuff as well. They like horses, they like rodeos, they like roping, they like country western music, they like doing all that stuff. So, so it's a little bit of Jesus and it's a little bit of other than, uh, this other stuff, whatever that happens to be. And it's not that they're a false church. It's not that they're a wrong church. I would just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that our unity, our unity, not just the unity of Crossway, but the unity of the church as a whole, our unity being in Jesus is best demonstrated when there is no other explanation for our unity than Jesus. Churches do stuff like this in a number of different ways. They try to reach out to young people. We've got to get the young people in. Or they say, we've got to keep the young people out and keep our culture and our heritage. There's no changing. We've got to work with the college crowd. We want to work with young couples. We're going to reach out to them. We're going to reach out to young professionals. We're going to be a church that reaches people who really love doctrine But in doing these things, we're by necessity going to lose something that Jesus says is a purpose of our being together. That the world might have no other explanation for what has brought us together beside the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
if people can look at us and say, ah, that's why those people all go there. They, they love horses, or they love loud music and live music, or they love to hear lectures for 50-odd minutes. All of these things attract people in the world, and it's easy to blow off why you are here. The church should frankly be a haven for people who think differently about the world and the same about Christ. People should be allowed to have different likes and wants, different political views, different attitudes about music, different attitudes about sports. But when people who think, love, and desire differently are brought together to worship Jesus, there's no doubt about why they're brought together. So you like horses. Congratulations. I think they're just basically a source of untapped meat for the rest of humanity. You like sports. That's great. There are plenty of people in this room who don't understand why you want to watch grown men kick a ball around a field. You like reading. There are some people in here, other than reading scripture, who can't remember the last time they read a book that didn't have pictures. You like gardening. I have nothing for you. That's just... But when we're all the same in looks and affections and desires, when socioeconomically we're the same, something of the mysterious nature of what Jesus does is lost. And so I would simply leave you, and, and now specifically talking to members of Crossway, with a question if that is true, what do people think about us? Do we have some mysterious reason why people come together? Do they look at the people leaving this church? Do they talk to the people of this church? And do they think, I don't see why those two would ever be in the same church they both really love Jesus. Maybe that's the only explanation for it. Or do we leave the impression that we are unified by Jesus and by other things? Political affiliation, skin color, economic station, middle class people. And do we leave however faint the impression that to fit in here requires something else besides a sincere love of Jesus. Our unity is purposeful. That unity then, which has this purpose, comes with two other results. First, fourth, sorry, I can't. It's not perfect. And by the way, I know you guys were all thinking like, oh, he's going to have alliteration all the way through. Fooled you. Our unity is glorious. There comes a silent P at the beginning of that. Our unity is glorious. Verse 22. The glory, he says, that you have given to me, I have given to them. In verse 24, he continues the same theme, that they might see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is something of an incredibly natural result and consequence of the fact that we have Jesus with us and that we believe in him. 
If we have Jesus with us, something of his glory must be with us as well. We, being one with Jesus, acknowledging him alone, demonstrate that he is indeed a glorious king. If the only thing that brings us together here, if this central thing in our lives is all about Jesus, then there's something glorious about him. It doesn't mean that the world is going to see it as glorious, but it does mean that his people ought to. We ought to see Jesus as glorious. Those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear ought to know that Jesus is indeed glorious. So why do you come? The natural outworking of our being together is seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you come here for other reasons? Do you come here because your family drags you or because your family always did and now you feel like you've got to keep coming? Do you come here because, I don't know, you like so-and-so in the church and they're nice and whatever, it's just another church? As long as you think that there are other things that are important for us when we come together outside of our devotion to Christ and having Christ as the center and knowing that Jesus Christ is indeed glorious and worthy of our affection, worthy of our time, worthy of our worship. We don't have the right understanding of why we are gathered together. Notice, the glory of Jesus is seen not just in yourself, but in the entirety of the church. It's not just for you. Give it to them. I have given them my glory. The glory is found in our unity together. It is not found in us as individuals. The glory is not our own. At no point in time does Jesus say, it's their glory, but I have given my glory to them. That is, he has given something of a, a symbol of his glory or a shining of his glory upon us as though we are like a moon reflecting the glory of the sun. But when we only seek that glory in ourselves, when we only look and see how his glory might be reflected in us as individuals, it's often that we will lose sight of the glory of what Jesus Christ is doing. The glory has to be seen in our unity together, our coming together. It's not that the word isn't glorious. It's not that preaching can't be glorious. It's not that praying can't be glorious. But at no point in time, here especially, but anywhere else does Jesus say, I I've given my glory over to that. I've given my glory to preachers. I've given my glory to singers and musicians. But he says, I've given it to the church. I've given it to them. Uh, one of the reasons why people give up on churches, why they seek to be anonymous in churches, why they seek to go to churches where they can disappear or simply move from church to church is this. They just don't truly see the glory of Jesus in others. They don't. They find it in themselves, or they find it in the architecture, or they find it in the music, or they find it in the preaching, or they find it in the word, and they think that they can get it all on their own. But they don't see it in every other person that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the glory of Jesus in his people? I'm going to tell you, this calls for perseverance and patience because you're not going to see it in a moment. I mean, I have yet to see a Christian where I looked over and all of a sudden their face was a light and I'm like, ah, the glory of Jesus. But it comes over time. 
over moments, over years. Jesus will transform people. Angry, hardened men will be softened and given to love. Bitter women, Jesus will mercifully pour faith and love into. Our God takes idolaters and blasphemers and makes them into people who love and worship the only true and living God. It doesn't happen overnight. You, you can't show up and expect to see the work and the glorious work that Christ is doing in someone in an instant. It takes years. And it takes knowing where that person has started from and watching as God leads them to a better place that more magnifies Christ. This is the reason why every single HGTV show isn't two minutes of going around the interior of a dilapidated house and then showing you the finished product. They fill up the other 50 minutes of showing you all this useless work that doesn't matter to you. But that's the only way they can sell it because only in seeing all of the effort and all of the work that went done does the end result really matter. Most of those times, the end result is not even all that glamorous or awesome. What makes it more so, and I'm using those words very, very loosely, the only thing that makes it glorious, the only thing that makes it appealing is that you know what it once was. And knowing what it was and what it is shows you the beauty of the work that has been done. So yeah, you do have to put up with people in the church. They are going to be angry and bitter at times. They are going to be slow-moving. So, you'll have to put up with them. You'll have to carry their burdens. You'll have to forgive them. You'll have to treat them with love and respect, even when they frankly don't deserve it. But in doing so, Christ will work. And one day, 15 years down the road, you're going to look back and you're going to be like, man, God has done just an amazing work in him. You will see the glory. And that glory can only truly be seen when you are unified to that person to put up with them, to deal with them, to work with them, and let's flip that around, them with you. Because all those things that they are, you are as well. Fifthly, our unity is love-filled. In verse 23, Jesus says something that is probably the, the most difficult thing to grasp in all of this passage. He says this in verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Incredibly underappreciated is the fact that God the Father loves you, according to Jesus here, even as he loves the Son. Let's think about that for just a moment. This is again sort of re-upped in verse 26, which talks again about the love which you've loved me may be in them. What does it mean for God to love the Son? 
Jesus is the Son of God, God of gods, Lord of lords, light of light. There is nothing in error or misshapen or misplaced in him. He is full of the majesty of God, radiant in beauty, glorious in his might, perfect in every way. He always does what is pleasing to the Father. The Father announces multiple times to multiple people at his baptism, at his transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father, with a passion that was formed in the very essence and nature of who he is. His love for his son is not manufactured. It comes out of the very being that God the Father is to love his son. The very power of God is built around the fact that he loves his son. The very power that made the universe is but a subset of the power by which the Father loves the son. Now, if you were to think of the thing that you love the most in life, hopefully that's a person, not a car. But think of that person that you love the most in life. And not just think of that person, but think of the moment in which you love them the most. Where they did something wonderful, or you thought you might lose them, or whatever the case might be, that, that one moment where you thought, well, I love them so much. I can't, can't stand it. I can't think of words to speak, you know? You read Shakespeare and you're like, ah, that guy doesn't quite capture any of it, right? No matter how wild your passion is, it is but a flickering candle that wouldn't light up bits of this room compared to the love the Father has for the Son. And not just that, but then think of who we are. We are, at the very end of the day, nothing. We're nothing. We're not important. We are utterly insignificant. Every single one of you Someday, if you have children, hopefully they will remember you. If you have grandchildren, maybe your memory will live on a little bit longer, but eventually one day, someone's going to walk past your grave and say, Doug Wallacher, I wonder who that bloke was. Let's go get some Taco Bell. And that's all you're going to get. You're insignificant. We just sang together, we blossom and flourish, but quickly grow frail. We wither and perish. Scripture has us all over the place. You're like grass that's here today and is gone tomorrow. You're a vapor that the sun drives away. You're, you're, you're insignificant is the whole point. You are insignificant. It's funny to hear atheists talk about like how the earth is. And they'll say things like, oh, religion makes so much out of people, but you need to understand we're not special. You know, we, we're kind of on an indiscriminate planet in the middle of a know-nothing solar system, our sun is pretty unremarkable, our galaxy is pretty much unremarkable, and, and all of the trillions and trillions of galaxies, it's all unremarkable. You're not significant at all. And, and you want to be like, have you actually read scripture? Because you're kind of late to the party here. We've been saying this for millennium now. 
we know we're insignificant. We know. Christianity has been beating that drum since its inception. And all the more important it is to understand that your insignificance magnifies the love that God has for you. Because he chose you. Out of everything to love in the world, he chose you to love in his son with the same passion that he loves the one who carries his very essence. It's not, not because you're great and worthy. It's not. Don't magnify yourself in the love of God. It is the fact that you are, rather, to magnify his affection all the more because you are insignificant. What great love he has for you. And all the more insignificant us and the great love of God, and yet he pours it out into us because, because we are found in Christ. That's why our unity is a sign of God's great love for us. Not because he loves us as individuals that way, but because he loves his son that way. And when we are found in the son, then God can pour all of his love upon us because he loves his son that way. So we are clothed with Christ. We are found in Christ. His death is our death. His life is our life. We are one with him. And because we are one with him, the father can love us that way and it's good and right that he does so. Our unity is the gateway for God to love us rightly and truly as he desires. Brothers and sisters, we might not be special. We are not gods in the making. We don't have some sort of untapped potential. But because we are found in Christ, unified in need, in belief, in redemption, and focus, because Christ is the center of our being not only as individuals, but also as a whole. Because of that, we are loved by God and that in Christ. Jesus is about to enter his greatest trial. According to the Father's plan, he will unjustly be brought before authorities and tried as a blasphemer. He will not open his mouth in protest. He will not call down legions of angels to defend him. He will not lash out in anger at the unfairness of it all. He will instead quietly lay down his life for us, dying a death that was not his to die, but was ours to die. He does this out of love for you and out of love for the Father. He does this to secure redemption of all who would believe in him. That exists for you today. Trust in that gift. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be unified to those who have believed Ever since Jesus rose from the grave, be unified to those who believed even in the hope of Jesus coming as we find in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Believe and trust. And those of you who already believe know all the more the security and the greatness and the glory of finding unity with one another through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that together, in common fellowship, and a unity that can only be coming from God, he might display the goodness and the glory of one who loved us and saved us. Let us pray.
Father, help us to keep whatever unity we might have gained and to press for more sincere and lasting unity in Christ with every passing week. May we ignore the things of the world that we find that we share, no matter how pleasant some of these things might rightly be to us. But even as we are sure to have these secondary things and secondary affections in common, let us press all the more to have Jesus at the center and the core of what we hold in common, to have this gospel as our glue so that those brought bought by the precious blood of Christ might truly be his body, his bride, indeed even a nation of priests for him. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.